Thanks, my name is Tim. I'm an alcoholic and a member of Al-Anon, um, date of sobriety, 24th of July, 1993. Very good to see lots of people here. The more cameras, the better. Uh, if I can't see the people, it's, it's tricky to pitch. So if you can turn your camera on, that would be greatly appreciated. Um, so we're on step 10. Uh, if you don't know what step 10 is, uh, well... <laughs> Listen to the earlier recordings or go to meetings or read the big book. Um, so we're going to start straight in on step 10. Um, I think this is a good point to recall uh, that the big book, which is the basic text of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is where the other fellowships take the steps from, was written by a specific bunch of people in a specific place, at a specific time, for a specific purpose. Namely, it was a small bunch of newly recovered alcoholics in 1939, who were frightened that they wouldn't be able to personally handle all of the requests for help, and were worried also about how to carry the message. So one-to-one -one is very difficult, very time-consuming. If you write it down, then you can provide the information to a lot of people all at once. Now, what are the steps? You, it, it might be thought that the steps are the 200 or so words on pages 58 and 59 of the big book or in meetings when they say, we're going to read out the 12 steps. And step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable, and then you go through to 12. Uh, those aren't the steps. Because what those are is a summary of the steps. The book itself describes those as a summary of the 12 steps. So what are the 12 steps? Unfortunately, the matter is a lot more complicated it's 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 essentially the contents of the big book up to around page 164 there are other things in those pages too but essentially it's the book up to that point so what is the status of the steps per pages 58 and 59 so the 200 or so words that get read out in meetings and are on the wall scrolls, that's a little aid memoir to remember roughly what's in them and where they are. Uh, the danger is to take those 200 or so words and say, well, that's the steps. We needn't worry about what was meant by those words or what they signified or what their purpose was, we'll just run with those and give them whatever meaning we like. Now, the reason this is a good point to say this is because step 10, the, the little summary on page 58, uh, which is 59 rather, so I mean 59 and 60, not 58 and 59, 59 and 60. The one on 59 uh, continued to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. It's perfectly true. But there's an awful lot in step 10 that is not captured by that line, just as there is a lot in step four. We 
took a fearless and thorough moral inventory of ourselves. If you just went on those words, we took a fearless and thorough moral inventory of ourselves, you would not accidentally come up with the step four as described in the big book. You wouldn't get anywhere near it. Um, so the, the full step 10, which is pages 84 to 85 of the big book, contains a lot more material than just that continue to take personal inventory. And the line continue to take personal inventory uh, covers more than just step 10 in the book. And I'll explain what I mean. To continue to take personal inventory can mean three things. First of all, as I go through the day, keeping an eye on myself. And as soon as I realize I've gone off track, in terms of my attitude and my action, bringing myself back on track. So that's uh, step 10 in the moment. There's some kind of daily or very, very regular practice of having a look at the day that's gone and say, well, what went wrong and what needs to change? And then periodically one does a more thorough, extensive review of one's life, maybe four times a year, maybe twice a year, don't do it less than once a year um, unless you want to die of alcoholism um, and have a horrible time while you're doing it as well. Uh, one, one, my experience is I have to do inventory. I have to continue to take personal inventory at all three levels. I need to keep an eye on myself during the day. I need to do a review uh, of some description at least once a day. Uh, to uh, five minutes or so just to uh, keep an eye on myself more generally to make sure I capture problems as they're as they've happened because I won't remember two weeks later and then also to stand back sometimes uh, very often one's life shifts one's attitudes shift one's mood shifts without realizing that it's happening if you've ever swum out at sea, you'll know, or been in a kayak out at sea, you think you're swimming or paddling along at a certain distance from the shore, and you glance across at the shore and you realise you're far further out than you've realised. And it's like that in recovery, which is why a periodic review of everything, the first nine steps is required. That once a year, twice a year, four times a year, full survey, I think is covered by step 12, when it says we continue to practice these principles in all our affairs, to practice all the 12 steps in all our affairs. The uh, daily review, nightly review, is covered in the big book, in, in the step 11 instructions, there's a little bit of a mismatch there. So that's fine. I'm sure we're all flexible enough to handle that. Um, so what we're left with is the contents of the big book, pages 84 to 85, which is how to handle ourselves as we go through the day. Now, the reason this isn't just an academic question, um, when I got to AA, uh, which was... When John Major was prime minister. Um, <laughs> uh, 
the step meetings were only ever 12 and 12 meetings. Uh, there weren't any big book meetings that I ever, ever encountered in London. I first encountered them abroad and actually started a couple in the early, early 90s, mid 90s. And the step 10 and the 12 steps and 12 traditions, a book written 20 years later than the book, talks about step 10 chiefly in the sense of uh, some sort of daily or nightly review. Now, that's very good, all very well. However, it doesn't talk at all about um, or, or, or at any in any depth at any about keeping an eye on ourselves as we go through the day. It does talk about a little spot check, but it doesn't go into detail. The tradition in AA when I got sober was for step 10 to be a daily or nightly written review. And the almost universal experience of this was writing down the same wretched nonsense day after day, night after night, and wondering if anything is going to change. Why? Because no one was paying attention to themselves during the day. You just run through the day like the Tasmanian Devil or Roadrunner or one of those other 1950s cartoons causing all sorts of havoc mindlessly. And then you come to at night, survey the wreckage, write a very sort of pointless pile of verbiage, send it to your sponsor and think you're doing the steps. And of course, nothing if nothing changes, nothing changes. Change has got to happen. Where does change happen in step 10? Through a nightly review? No, not cheaply. Chiefly through how we get through the day. So that's the intro. So I'm going to read from the book. Um, la, 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 step 10. This is page 84, which suggests we continue to take personal inventory and continue to set right any new mistakes as we go along. So as we go along, if you're driving, you adjust the steering wheel as you go along. You don't crash the car and then try to adjust the steering wheel, hoping that adjusting the steering wheel after you've crashed is somehow going to reverse the crash. You've got, you've got to adjust the steering wheel as you go along. That's what step 10 is about. We vigorously commenced this way of living as we cleaned up the past. What does as we cleaned up the past mean? Cleaning up the past in the book is steps four through nine. In other words, this method of living, which is going to be described, is started all the way back when we do step four. Now, People in AA, they're lovely, but they say some very silly things sometimes. They're not silly people, but they can say silly things. And one of the silly things that is said is the steps are in an order for a reason. Um, now, in a sense, that's quite right. But the reason is because in the West, we have a linear numbering system. If you have a list of items and you number them, they're going to end up in an order. The mistake, however, is to think that step 10 comes after step 9 in the same way that 10 o'clock comes after 9 o'clock. 
and that step 10, one must wait for steps 10, 11, and 12 until step nine has been completed. If you actually read what the book says, uh, what it's suggesting is when you take step three, which is the moment at which you commit to taking the rest of the steps, uh, two train tracks immediately appear in front of you. One train track is the train track of steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, this long arc using which one surveys and rectifies the mistakes of the past. And the second arc, the second train track, is the daily train track, the little daily circuit. If you think about steps four th through nine, is it were like a long train journey along a train track which goes off into the far distance. And the second train track is a little loop which lasts just a day and the train comes back to the beginning and you reset and then you send the little train off on its little daily loop. So you get to step three, you, you don't have one train now. Up to step three, you've got one train. The train splits. One train goes off on the track to the end of step nine. The other one operates on a daily loop. So if you are going to present the steps graphically, you would have a single train track and then four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine goes off like this, and 10, 11, and 12 goes in a repeating loop. But our Western numbering system doesn't easily allow for that, which is why the steps are in the order they're in. Doesn't mean that 10 comes after nine. 10 is concurrent with four through nine and then continues in perpetuity once nine has been completed. Uh, I was mercifully encouraged to begin with steps 10, 11, and 12. Uh, as soon as the alcohol was out of my system, if I was a few days sober, I could help and encourage uh, those who were just newly sober. Uh, even just a few weeks in, I was encouraged when sharing in meetings not to... I, I heard someone say something a few years ago. Um, that was it. It was a it was a step meeting, funnily enough. I, I can't remember what the step was, because what I'm about to say doesn't bear any relation to any step. But one of one of the, the gentle participants, they'd had a sudden realization, it appeared. And they said, telling us their sudden realization, is that I've suddenly realized what meetings are for. They're for dumping my toxic shit. Now, that might have been what they were using meetings for, which is fine. You know, we're, we're very glad when everyone shares. You get three minutes and you're done. What you do with that three minutes, as, as long as you don't have a pop at someone else or express a view on an issue in the news, then you're, you're, you're largely in the clear. But I don't think that's what meetings were designed for, and it's certainly not what traditions would suggest meetings for. Meetings are a venue in which we can carry the message to people by sharing our experience. Whatever stage one has got to, one has experience and one can share it. If it's if the experience is deployed in the service of God in order to help other people, um, well, that's what the sharing is for. And so even a few weeks in, I was encouraged to say what 
I had been doing in AA, what problem I came to AA to solve, uh, what actions I'd been taking in AA and what results I'd been getting. I was to be careful about revealing uh, very personal details in meetings. I was to share in a general way. But I could, I could carry the message. I could practice 10, 11, and 12. Maureen said to me, you need to do a daily inventory right from day one. So I was set going on good practice right from the beginning. So I get sponsees to do the same. Uh, the thing is also uh, the only two guidance systems available are the higher power. Through whatever means one contacts the higher power, there are people who say they're atheists, have no spiritual beliefs. But when you ask them how they conduct their lives, it is in accordance with higher values of selflessness and constructive action and common sense. Uh, that's as close to a higher power uh, as anyone can get, really. So just because one doesn't consider oneself to be running one's life under the guidance of a higher power doesn't mean one isn't. But there's another voice, and that's the voice of the ego. Uh, most people find this was certainly the case for me. If I don't deliberately place my mind under the guidance of the higher power, it will default to being under the guidance of, of selfishness, of self-centeredness paranoia, suspicion, hostility, distrust, envy, jealousy, cynicism, scorn, contempt, deceit, conceit, vanity, arrogance. Shall I carry on? <laughs> That's a list. Um, so I needed to place myself at the mercy of the program from the beginning. Now, the next line, we have entered the world of the spirit. Now, that is a, a line in the book which does come at a specific point, which is after the completion of step nine. Um, the simplest way to put that is when I completed my last amend, I felt for the first time fully connected with the world and with the rest of humanity. The second thing that I became aware of was that I was distinct from my body, my material circumstances, even my so-called personality. Um, people would say for years, you're a spiritual being having a human experience, not a human being having a spiritual experience. In other words, my identity is spirit, cannot be destroyed, was never born, will never die. I happen to be operating in a physical form, as uh, Bob Bazance calls it, the space suit. And uh, that was... That was essentially the experience of ent entering the world of the spirit. Now, uh, one doesn't stay there automatically, just a moment. 
uh, one doesn't stay there automatically. It takes quite a lot of peddling to stay in the realm of the spirit. Also, the first time one enters it is quite a shock. One is vividly aware of all that I've described. That awareness naturally dims. And in a sense, you're back to normal after a while. But when you stop to think about it, you recall the truth of the higher state and it can be reaccessed at will. But one doesn't go through life in this sort of blissful state. You have an ordinary life. You've now got insights which are born of experience, but nonetheless, you have an ordinary life. You get on with it. Uh, our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. Effectiveness is step 12. So once I've had the spiritual awakening, or as I'm having it, I mean, the spiritual awakening starts right from the first few days of miraculously being able to stay sober. That's the beginning of a spiritual experience. Step 12, carry the message, practice these principles, the principles of the program in all our affairs. In other words, my affairs are no longer my business. It's the practice of the principles in those effects. So my career, or say it's not a career, whatever you want to call it. I don't like calling it a career. My livelihood, my occupation is not, is not a career in the ordinary sense. It is simply a venue to practice the principles. What do I, I don't go to work every day. I go to a particular place to practice the principles all day. Much nicer than going to work. Going to work is horrible. I don't know if you've ever been to work. It's the most dreadful thing. You have to sit there and you have to do terrible things for people you care little for, who themselves care little for the things you're doing for. Uh, much more interesting to practice principles all day. Grow in effectiveness. The purpose of inventory um, is not to sit there for decades in very intense meetings weeping about the past or weeping about the present. Now, of course, one weeps um, as the circumstances allow and license. Uh, but the purpose of my life is, is, is not to sit staring at myself, um, uh, carrying around uh, trauma like bricks in a backpack and getting the bricks out at every possible juncture just to have everyone else look at the bricks as well. The purpose of recovery is to, and I say this as someone that's had quite a past, I'm not going to rehearse the details in an exhibition's fashion, but um, put it this way, I'd give one example. For years, there was a team of people uh, on a rotor whose job it was to monitor my state of mind uh, and then report back to my family because there was significant concern about my ability to look after myself, to not harm myself and to not harm others. Okay, so I'm not saying this as someone that was tripping through the tulips before I got to a, I'm speaking as someone with a very hefty past I needed to get over it. Now, that takes a long time 
fine. It takes a lot of work. One rinse cycle through the washing machine was not enough. It took multiple rinse cycles through the washing machine of the steps. It wasn't instant. Two steps forward, one step back. You get to 16 years sober. A new situation arises in your life. You realize there's stuff that hasn't been dealt with. Fine. That's all true. But it is not the purpose of my life. It's what needs to be gotten out of the way so that I can get on to the purpose of my life, which is to live constructively and fully and enjoy myself. <laughs> that's what that's what the point. If if I'm a misery because I'm not enjoying my life, no one will want what I have and no one will ask me to sponsor them. And I need to be carrying the message of AA in order to be OK. I didn't make up those rules. I'm just observing those as the facts in my life. So the purpose of this continued inventory um, is to grow in effectiveness, understanding of what the F I'm getting up to, and effectiveness in my, first of all, uh, carrying of the message, and secondly, the practice of the principles. The layers of the onion People are always going on about onions and layers. Why that vegetable should be picked, I don't know. Um, <clears throat> C.S. Lewis says, if you pick enough layers of the onion, you end up with no onion. And there's nothing at the centre. There's just, it, the further you go down, there's just more onion. Very good observation. Um this is not an overnight matter. That's one of the great understatements of the book. This is not an overnight matter. Um, and I'm going to say something which is, I hope, I hope this isn't disheartening, but uh, in my first 10 years, frankly, there were periods I was very depressed. There were periods I was very anxious. Uh, I mean, the sort of depressed and the sort of anxious, which if I if I'd gone uh, prescription filler doctor shopping, I could have easily got some prescriptions filled on repeat. But I I decided you do what you want. Never advise other people what to do on this. I will talk about myself. I decided not to medicate myself or have myself medicated but to walk through it and find out what was underneath. What I found underneath was selfishness and self-centeredness and all sorts of delusions about the nature of myself, the nature of the world and my role in it. Unfortunately, the only way to find that was to sit with it long enough until I would rather face the horror than have another day of the depression. That's my experience. You may have other experiences. I, 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 one cannot repeat enough that other people adopt different approaches to depression, to anxiety, to other disorders. This is not advice. This is me saying what I did. It has no authority. One must decide for oneself. One must consult who one wants to consult. If one wants to get outside help, one gets outside help, whether that's um, psychotherapeutic or 
pharmacological or whatever. It's everyone's path is their own. The reason why I'm the only one that has to live with the decisions that I make. You are the only one that has to live with the decisions that you make and the you are responsible for the decisions you make. I am not responsible for the decisions you make. I'm one example. There are lots of other examples too. One needs to give this little warning because a lot of people in recovery will simply copy what someone says and then blame them, the person they copied, if they don't get the results they anticipated or wanted. So I am not responsible for anything you do with any of the information or experience I'm sharing today. You are responsible for doing your own homework and making your own choices. Boom, there we go. This is not an overnight matter. So uh, I've been doing this for decades and I, I'm not really finding anything new in doing inventory. But I am discovering it's like the ego has been growing up side by side with me for the last 30 years. My ego has done A Course in Miracles. It sat there doing the daily lessons and assimilating the wisdom in order to pursue its own objectives. Um, the ego keeps pace which is why one isn't discovering anything new. I know my ego very well now compared to 30 years ago, but it doesn't mean it can't pull tricks on me. Um, it's You know that game Othello with the counters, which are black on one side and white on the other? Uh, the journey with the ego, it's like an endless game of Othello where you think you've got some victories because you've turned over the black counters and they're now white and you look back a couple of days later and lots of the counters have turned back in the other direction. That's what this is like. And it's fine. I didn't make up the system. I'm just reporting how it appears to me. Now we get into the substance of step 10. Continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment and fear. Let's define those. Selfishness is where I'm putting myself in front of others, and I shouldn't be. There are times, of course, I do put myself in front of others. For instance, the phone goes off at a certain time every day and doesn't come on again till the next morning. Is this putting myself in front of others? Yes, means others can't call at that time. And I used to take calls. I, I, I remember once taking a call at three o'clock in the morning from someone. Never again. Um, if someone needs to talk to someone at three o'clock in the morning, they'll have to find someone who's awake naturally at three o'clock in the morning. I'm not. So selfishness is about where I'm putting myself in front of others and I should be putting them in front of me. Dishonesty. Um, again, sometimes people will walk up to you in AA to make amends. And they say it's a program of rigorous honesty. And then they tell you all sorts of things you are not aware of that they've done behind your back. And then they say sorry for the things that you were unaware of two minutes earlier. <laughs> and the apology does nothing. But by God, the knowledge of what they've been up to for the last six months sticks with you. Um, so honesty is about obviously telling the truth. Telling the truth as it is, not with distortion and not 
concealing things. But only where to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth is the right thing to do. You don't get onto a train carriage and announce your business to everyone. In failing to do so, you're not being dishonest. And it's a very it's a very curious thing. Sometimes, um, have you noticed in meetings when someone shares a very harrowing story, they're thanked for their honesty. Very on a very regular basis. If it's a very upsetting to listen to, very distressing, several people will share back saying, thank you for your honesty. When someone shares a story of hope and success, it's very rare for someone to say, thank you for your honesty. And I wonder what is going through the minds of the people who are saying, thank you for your honesty when the darkness is shared. Do they not think the other things are honest? It's a very interesting question when people use the word honesty. Um, people often scrub up better in meetings in their sharing than they do in everyday life. And sometimes it's perceived that people in AA are hypocritical because there is a gap between what they present in meetings and what they're like every day. I think, frankly, that gap is natural. Um, there's a gap. I'm sure you behave better at work than you think, than is going on in your mind. Thank God I do. I don't let everyone know everything that is going on. I think there's a balance here. Um, my When I'm sharing in meetings, my job is to carry the message. Uh, but without being without misrepresenting myself, without pretending, for instance, that I never have difficulties or my character defects never manifest. Um, but in order to give a true and fair view of myself, I don't need to uh, empty out the trash can when I go to a meeting. Just a few references to put things in perspective is sufficient. So the question about dishonesty is really a question about gross dishonesty, where the moral thing to do is to be open and candid and clear and to tell the whole truth and nothing but truth. Uh, the, the other form of dishonesty, which I think is worth bringing up, is, is connivance, scheming, plotting, planning. Um, secret, I, I'm very cautious of my own secret objectives, even if those objectives are for the good of others or for the good of all. If I wouldn't want my objective to be broadcast, the objective should be put away, frankly. Um, I should be able to be upfront about what my objectives are. So that's dishonesty. We've got selfishness and dishonesty down. Resentment and fear. Um, resentment is a technical term in AA. Uh, if you want a full explanation of what it, it means as a technical term, look at pages 64 and 65. But essentially, it's any... Uh, 
It's about negative responses to things going on in the past or in the present. And the, this, the, the range of words the book gives includes feeling hurt, feeling threatened, feeling injured, interfered with, uh, having a grudge, burned up, sore, angry. What I'm concerned with, with resentment, is any negative reaction which is recurrent, persistent, or distorted in some way. Um, there are things in society uh, which other people can observe without getting upset, whereas I get, I get set off by them. I start squawking. Those things where you're set off more than other people, those are always very interesting. So resentment is not just the, the grumbling grievance. Uh, it's all of those negative reactions. And fear is really the same, except it's cast into the future and usually more personalized. My resentments fall into two categories. Firstly, I resent, I will resent at times uh, people or situations which interfere with my plans. Secondly, I will resent anything which doesn't reflect my values. If I'm not in a fit spiritual state, if I'm in a fit spiritual state, I can be tolerant and I can see things which don't reflect my values and I can pass on by. If I'm not in a good state, then those will irk me. Fear is, my, my experience is narrower and about specifically things which will interfere with my plans in the future. So these are the four things to watch for in my mind, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. And the next line is very disappointing. You see, what I would want the next line to say is, having identified uh, selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, we block out our, our schedules, we cancel everything, and we sit at home thinking about ourselves, we get our little phone, we call down the list, and we call as many people as possible and repeat the same sorry story to each one, embellishing the story with, with, with further and better particulars, with more lurid detail on each occasion, until we're weeping at our evening meeting and can think of nothing else. And a little cluster of people forms around us, providing great comfort for our woes. That's what I wanted to say. And it doesn't. I bet you bet you want to know what it says. What it says is, when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them, which, of course, spoils all the fun. Uh, the job is to promptly get back to the task at hand, which is almost invariably dull, which explains why I'm so tempted to be engaged in selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. Um, ask God at once to remove them. Now, as with everything else, the book is very big on, oh, God will do this, God will do that, as though I've got no part in it. Of course, I do have a part in it. Uh, Dr. Paul O talks about going to his sponsor, complaining about something his wife did, and uh, the sponsor said, try not thinking about it for a couple of days. And he said, 
not think about it, but then I'll forget all about it. Uh, God will do God's part, but I've got to do my part, which is to refuse to dwell on those negative things and to get my action back on track, doing the thing that I'm supposed to be doing on behalf of God. Uh, God is not in charge of what I do with my mind. I am. God will not. God can provide direction. If I don't know which direction to point my mind in, God will provide the direction and the strength to do it. But I have to do the pointing. If one is driving a car, as it were, uh, uh, God puts the petrol in the uh, petrol tank. And God will tell you what destination to put on the satellite navigation system. But, but God won't manipulate the pedals or turn the steering wheel or pay attention to the other traffic for you. My experience as an alcoholic and also as an Al-Anon is that I want everyone else to do something for me. Uh, for lots of reasons. Firstly, so that I don't have to make the effort. So I don't have to think anything through. And so that I have someone to blame when it goes wrong. And it's easy to want to do the same thing with God. Uh, to get, well, God's just going to do everything. I, I'm full of resentment. I guess I'll pray to God. Uh, yes, but I've got to do my part, which means stop thinking about it. How do you do that? You substitute something else. The task at hand. Puppies. Whatever you want. If you curate your Instagram account carefully enough, you can manipulate it to present you only with rabbits and kittens. Very straightforward. Any, any fool can do that. And you look at the rabbits and the kittens until you feel better. And then you send them to everyone you know. They'll be so thrilled. Um, so we ask God at once to remove them brackets doing our part as well to refuse to engage in the nonsense um but it's so hard that's because you haven't developed the muscle one has to practice this for decades and then you get good at it but you've got to start somewhere it's no good saying well i tried it for five minutes so i'm going to give up you've got to keep keep trying um if you've got the ability to keep drinking, even though you keep throwing up, I'm sure you've got the ability to turn your mind to better things than you need to. Um, uh, if I show the same persistence with recovery as I did with drinking and with other behaviours, then Dr. Bob says something. If you put half the effort into your recovery that you did into your, your drinking life and clearing up the messes that that entailed, uh, you'll do just fine. Um, we discuss them with someone immediately and make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Now, I discuss these things with someone else only where they require discussion because the situation is novel and I literally don't know what to do because it's complex in a way that I haven't encountered before. That's rare after the first year of recovery. Almost everything you've come across before, you've got the advice before, look at your notes, do what you did last time. So I, I need to discuss things only when I need to discuss things and make amends quickly if we have harmed anyone. That's plain. Go and go and say sorry. There's a, a fashion in AA. So amends are not about saying sorry. The book 
encourages the use of the word sorry. There's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. Go and say sorry. You regret what you did. What can you do to set it right? Very straightforward. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Um, we resolutely turn our thoughts, not God resolutely turns our thoughts against our will. We resolutely turn our thoughts. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Um, tolerance is saying, I'm not going to resist the things I find objectionable in the world. I'm simply going to pass over them and go on to the next thing. I'm not going to dwell on them. I'm not going to fight against them. Love, I think, is most helpfully for me summed up in the idea of acting in the benefit of other people. Uh, not about fluffy feelings. What can I do that actively contributes to the welfare of others? And now we have this, the so-called step 10 promises, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone. Now, these promises can be turned into principles to deliberately choose to live by, which will accelerate the advent of these promises into one's life. We have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. Many years ago, I was legitimately ill-treated by an employer, and I could have sued. And I, this is not advice, I decided not to. I decided just get on with it, sort my own life out, get another job. And my God. When I've seen a lot of situations where uh, on either side, people who work for employers, where the, there are court cases and or, or other tribunal cases and people who've gone through them. I don't envy anyone in any of those situations. One of the best decisions I ever made was not fighting that and just moving on. My bank balance is OK. I, I don't know what I would have gained. I could have got some money. But how much would I have lost? Again, not advice. You do what you want. You sue whoever you want. I don't care. <laughs> I, the program suggests things that the world does not like. That the world, people would throw up their hands and say, you can't do that. You, you've got to fight for your rights. I don't. I've got a higher power. My higher power seems to sort things out. That's how I've chosen to live. I like the results. As I say, I don't, that, I always go, it's been a big thing in the last year, this career question. The world will tell you you need to be a motivated self-starter. You need to know where you're going to be in five years' time. You need to be passionate about perfection and about solutions and customer service and all of these wonderful things. And you need to be constantly developing yourself, continual professional development. And, and you need to keep a little record of all the things you're doing to develop yourself. And, oh, it's very exciting. And uh, I know a lot of, now to keep this to yourselves, I know a lot of people with careers in, in the sense of a career, in the ordinary sense of career. And I see what it does to them psychologically. I don't envy any of them. But I, trust in God, I seem to have an occupation. I seem to have a livelihood. My bank balance is okay. I don't understand it, but it seems to work. So I'm going to I'm going to keep going with it. Uh, what the program to me suggests is very different than what the world suggests. 
If you've tried the world and it fails, try the program. Um, so cease fighting anything or anyone. Um, several people, again, keep this to yourself. This is just between you and me and anyone who listens to this tape in 30 years' time. A few people have had a bone to pick with me this week. Oof. <laughs> Trying to start little fights. <laughs> some of them privately, some of them publicly. Oh, I, I won't play. Complete silence. I have nothing to say. <laughs> and I never used to block people. I love blocking people now. It's my fav my two favorite things are cancelling things and blocking people. I don't have to fight. I don't have to crawl through the desert on my knees for a hundred miles repenting. That's Mary Oliver who said that. I don't have to, it I don't have to fight. Complete silence. It saves a lot of time and a lot of energy. I was in a bookshop many years ago. Uh this was 29 years ago, so I was a year sober, a year sober, uh, sober about it, uh, not necessarily, not living my best life, let's just put it like that. And I went into a Christian bookshop in Battersea, determined to start an argument with the woman behind the counter, and I edged into the conversation very gently in a very uh, polite and friendly and I started to crank the handle of an argument and as soon as she realized what was going on she said this conversation is not to the grace of God we are closed very good girl very well done um and that's what I do today if I sense the direction it's going in I've no, no fights are never won. Um, so I don't. Um, I have occasionally sued monetary claims, but I do it very much at arm's length. It's just a standard procedure. When, when customers don't pay, uh, so I've got a standard procedure. They get a letter on this date, a letter on that date, county court, um, small claims or small claims court form gets sent off but it's like a standard commercial procedure it's not a fight in the sense of well a fight so it doesn't mean that i don't do what needs to be done but it's done with the same neutrality as buying an orange or something not fighting if there's any emotion involved um i've got to question why i'm doing it um for by this time, the book says, sanity will have returned. Sanity is not drinking when I want to drink. There we go. We will seldom be interested in liquor. That means we will sometimes be interested in liquor. Just note that. Seldom doesn't mean never. Uh, if tempted, we recoil from it as from a hot flame. Now, that's not that's not an instruction. That's a report of what will happen if we're in fit spiritual condition. 
we react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude toward li liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. Now, footnote, the thought or effort is not the thought or effort to fight alcohol. It is the, There is an awful lot of thought and effort, but the thought and effort goes into the working of the other steps. And then out the bottom of that mechanism comes the ability to turn away from alcohol at the right moment. In early days, um, I did also need to exert my willpower in order not to drink, but it was in conjunction with the other um, features of the program. It was, so rather than putting the effort into not drinking, it was putting the effort into go to the meeting and sit on the steps of the meeting until the meeting starts. Don't move. So it wasn't don't drink. It was sit on the seat. Stay here a minute at a time and then the meeting will start and then you'll be OK. So the effort goes into doing the right thing, not not doing the wrong thing. I can't win the battle of not doing the wrong thing. I can win the battle of doing the right thing with God on my side. Uh, it, it just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it. Neither are we avoiding temptation. Uh, the book will say in uh, uh, chapter seven that until we're in fit spiritual condition, in other words, until we've completed the first nine steps, you want to avoid temptation unless you've got a very legitimate reason to place yourself in a in a questionable situation. We feel as though we have been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. In, instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist. We're neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. My understanding of fit spiritual condition is not got to do with mood. Um, and it's also not got to do with spiritual insights. Um, uh, I know someone that went on a, I think a very expensive, note that, you'll need that bit of information for later, very expensive trip to Costa Rica, where they were going to undergo a ceremony, um, where they were going to take uh, ayahuasca, something like that, under the, uh, under the aegis of a shaman. And they were going to get the most wonderful insight into the universe. Um, and this is a very common thing. It's a very common thing to happen in, in recovery. Um, now, if your friend Barry from off the estate offered you some LSD around the corner behind the bins, you probably have the same experience. <laughs> of you know the the boundary between you and the universe dissolving you see all sorts of colors but barry isn't a shaman it's not in costa rica you're not paying five thousand pounds for the experience if your sponsee came to you and said uh, my friend barry just been let out of prison got these amazing contacts he's offered me some lsd uh uh, does that sound does that sound like a good next step in my recovery if you, you know what to say 
sometimes people hesitate when it's all wrapped up in, in something else. But spiritual condition is not about um, uh, mind-blowing experiences where the fabric of reality dissolves and you see yourself as part of this cosmic expanse. Uh, the question is, are you honest when you fill out your tax return? When an unattractive, stinky alcoholic comes into your home group, do you go and talk to them or do you let someone else do it? Hoping that someone else is going to get there first so you don't have to. But spiritual condition for me is about my conduct today. And if I can be nice while I'm doing it, then I get I get, you know, 10 points to slithering. But the, the, the main purpose of my fit spiritual condition is to be useful today. And if I feel it, great. But feeling is not the measure of this. Action is the measure of this. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do so. For alcohol is a subtle foe. That's another of the major understatements in the book. Alcohol is a subtle foe. How does alcohol come back? Um, in my experience and observation, when it's been on the way back, it comes through the form of, uh, or via, or its precursors are, trying to change my mental and emotional state other than by living differently doing anything which gives me a buzz or a quick fix uh something which changes me chemically or physically could be very very careful about i'm very sticky when it comes to addictions i need to i don't care about anyone else i need to keep off everything which affects me above the neck uh because I just like the effect. Even if the effect is weird and horrible, I kind of like it. Part of me just doesn't want to be here. Fine. Uh, that part of me is not in the ascendant anymore. Um, I place the world of recovery as centrally now as I did in my first year. And the bulwarks against relapse, I think, are redoing the steps on a regular basis. It doesn't have to be a big production number and performance, but it does need to be done. Uh, trying to incorporate the traditions and concepts into one's life as methods of solving situations. Being sponsored, sponsoring other people, going to meetings, telling the truth, prayer and meditation, make your bed, cook your dinner, no funny business. You're wondering what funny business is. You know what your funny business is because it's just come into your head. That. Don't do that and you'll be fine. Um, where are we? We're not cured of alcoholism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent upon the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And, and now this is a bit you can implement. Every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all 
our all of our activities. Learn that line, memorize it, repeat it many times a day and let it become something which comes automatically into your mind when you're doubtful or agitated. How can I best serve thee? Thy will not mine be done. And when I'm uh, when I'm in a bad mood, uh, I have to manually crank that up and just keep saying to God, show me the next thing to do. Go and get an apple. Good. I'll go and get the apple. What do I do now? Eat the apple. Good. I can do that. Eat. Do the next piece of work. Check that invoice. Find the problem in the invoice. Solve the problem in the Life is made up of these tiny little insignificant things. My, I keep my focus on that. God, what do you want me to do next? If it is there for me to do, it is God's will for me to do it. It doesn't need seeking God's will is not fancy, I don't think. Um, several times a week, it's laundry. Several times a day, it's doing the dishes. Do that, not the other thing, not the funny business. And what I get out of that is, is a frankly amazing life. Um, these are thoughts which must go with us constantly. Um, uh, we can exercise our willpower along this line, or we wish it is the proper use of the will. So there's a, a it's not, I have no will, um, and God's will be done. My will must be added to God's will, and the two together are unstoppable in my life. Just one last thing. Um there's a, a show which is on at the moment where there's a, a mother and a son and they've got a rather uh, disordered relationship. Uh, they kind of works, but they're probably a little too close, the mother and the son. And the son is an adult and they're in the same business. They're a business together. And um, um, the son says, I've had the most wonderful idea. And the mother says, hurrah, but better tell mummy just in case it's a stinker. And I'm like that with God. I have all sorts of good ideas, but I need to check them out with God because a lot of my good ideas are stinkers. And ultimately, if I test my good ideas against God, uh, uh, Something my sponsor would say is, uh, ask, is your intended course of action for the good of all? And that immediately, so often has revealed that I'm, I'm on a self-driven course. And if step 10 would boil down to something, it's that run it past God and run it past a sponsor. Um, that's all I've got. Let's move over to questions and answers. So Ray, you can raise your hands, your virtual hands. Um, if you can keep the questions snappy, that would be helpful. And if you don't want to say the question out loud, because this is recorded. So if you say anything out loud, it's part of the recording. We won't bleep you. So don't, no big reveals and don't tell us about other people. Um, you can put the question in the chat. Uh, Pavel. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Uh, Politics the Holic, I want to ask, uh, when do you uh, suggest to uh, 
to introduce step 10 to two sponsees. You said step four, so is it in the beginning when, when they started with step four, or is it year, earlier or, yeah, that's it, thanks. Um, I, as soon as someone, uh, as soon as I agree to sponsor someone, I give them a daily program to be getting on with. It's very simple, very rudimentary to start off with. But if someone, uh, if I need to have a plan for the day, and to examine at the end of the day what went well, what went badly, what needs to be done differently. Well, they're, they're new. They're going to need that as well. They need a plan for the day. If I can't wing it at 30 years and just make it up as I go along, God you know, God help newcomers if they're making it up as they go along. I was told right from the beginning, have a plan. Develop the plan in accordance with the program. And monitor what happens if things go wrong you've got to fix it straight away don't let things build up so right from the beginning have a have a plan have a program have a daily program any other qu oh here's a question if you have a fear and it's been the same fear for a long time and you've done step fours and many inventories and still have the same fear what do you do well that's a very common that's a very common question <laughs> In A Course in Miracles, which is one of the books, it's not an AA book, it's not an Alanon book, but I found it very helpful. I found doing what it suggests one does to be very helpful. The book itself won't do anything. One's got to apply it. But it says in there, uh, there's a sort of voice in there, which is which uh, uh, is the, really the voice of the higher power. And the, the line is this, you are much something like this you are much too tolerant of your own mind wandering and it's as though god is saying i can't get between you between your thoughts and the consequences of those thoughts what does it mean to have a fear to have a fear means a fear thought comes into my mind and says here i am a very bad thing is going to happen and then your life will be terrible what do you think of that uh i don't think thoughts initially they think themselves at me i'm the recipient of thought offers they offer themselves to me there's the line the thought crossed my mind i don't cause it to cross my mind i it crosses my mind all by itself. Now, what does it mean to have a fear? Uh, the physical brain is going to pump out all sorts of funny thoughts all day long. My job is to assess the thought that presents itself, the thought that's saying, think me, I'm a valuable thought, believe me, act on me. I get to look at that thought and say, am I going to believe you or not? Some fears are are really um, they're not fears at all. They're prudence and caution and forethought. Uh, so if you're anticipating a few, let's say you're anticipating the week, and you realise you've bitten off more than you can chew, and there isn't enough time during the week to do all the things you said you were going to do. You might say, right, 
uh, there is a potential bad thing happening. I might deliver some work late or have to cancel something at the last minute. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to go into the office today, um, let's say Saturday morning, and get a few things out of the way, and then I can be confident that I will meet my deadline. That's prudence and forethought and being responsible. Now, there might be a little stab of fear as you anticipate the week ahead. But we're not talking about that here. We're talking about essentially morbid fears, those recurrent self-centered morbid fears. Uh, you cannot stop your mind producing each fear, in, uh, as it were, um, popping it through the letterbox of your mind. What you can, what I can control is what I do with it. Uh, aside from those rare instances where I must exercise forethought, caution, planning, with almost every other fear, uh, the answer is this. Uh, if it's a fear, it is coming from my ego. It is therefore to be dismissed and disregarded. I don't have to believe it just because I've thought it. If there was a crazy person on the bus sitting next to you saying crazy things, you wouldn't believe them just because they're next to you. My thoughts are not my thoughts. They are thoughts which are being had at me. They're next to me. I don't need to believe them. Why should I believe them? How did I pick me as the person whose thoughts are to be believed? I don't readily believe anyone else's. I've got, to, I've got to do the job here. The inventory will reveal uh, what the fears are. I've got to get rid of them. You know? Now, how to do that is by doing God's will, which is how the removal takes place. When I fully absorb myself into doing God's will, I haven't got time to be frightened. And then behind the scenes, below the surface, all sorts of changes happen, which I cannot affect manually. They just happen. God has to get me out of the way so that God can do God's side of it. And then I find that those thoughts occur less often. But I'm, I have sole responsibility for sifting which thoughts I'm going to believe and which thoughts I'm going to dismiss. Which thoughts... I'm going to dwell on and which I'm going to disregard entirely. And uh, there are you, the book, big book says there are many useful books also. Um, on fear specifically, uh, this is non-conference approved literature. So uh, uh, put your hands over your ears and make a screaming sound if you don't want to hear non-conference approved literature being uh, plugged. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale, as unfashionable as he is, uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Emmett Foss, I don't necessarily agree with their religious doctrine, but they've got very, very useful tips. So I can say when a fear thought comes, I can say to it, I don't care. I've got God on my side. God will enable me to handle any situation with grace and cheer and poise. So you, little fear thought, and go and F yourself. I don't care. Be gone before someone drops a house on you. Not interested. Go away. 
go and bother someone else. Stand up to it. You, 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 you can't, one can't be the victim of one's own mind. You've got to show it who's boss. Your boss, it's not boss. It, the, the physical brain is just electrical signals and chemicals pumping out random things which look like thoughts. They're not thoughts, really. They're sequences of words and pictures. The real thinking is the decision I make as to what to believe and how to respond to those things. That's real thinking. Um, any other questions, either hands up or in the chat? Apparently not. So, Jason, do you want to uh, close things up? Um, okay, no worries. Um, no one has any questions. We'll um, finish it up. Um, thanks so much, Tim. Um, so in about a month's time, we'll, Tim will do step 11. Uh, we've got the group link there for you to join the group. Um, Tim's blog's there as well. Uh, if you want to contact Tim, you can contact Tim through the blog. There's also lots of good information about good meetings um, that Tim attends there as well. Um, and the seventh tradition. So it's just for the Zoom account because it's not a 12-step meeting. Um, thanks a lot, Tim, and thanks, everyone. So do you want to take us out with the serenity prayer? Thank you, everyone. Would you please join me in the serenity prayer? God, grant me God. the serenity. To accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the Thank you so much, Tim. My pleasure. Have a good day. Thank you, Tim. Thanks, everybody. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye. Take care, Sarah. Bye, guys. Thank you. See ya. Take care. See you, Lane. Bye, guys. This was an awesome meeting. Thank you so much. All right. Time to go. Have a great day, Elaine. Uh, thank you. I'm so tired, but I'm, I am so happy that we recorded it. Oh, dear. Yeah, it's recorded, yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye.